Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark the Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey Knockreiner, the super serious gunner fan! Sorry. <laughs> You're missing the British accent on that one. Oh That's yeah. <laughs> May I have more gunner, please? Oh boy. <laughs> on today's episode, before Corey gets into trouble with more impersonations, <laughs> uh, we'll be discussing two breaches that occurred, or at least were published, over the holidays. Uh, one involving a popular password manager, at least an update on that one, and the leak of hundreds of millions of credentials from a popular yet waning social engineering social engineering uh, social media network. Uh, after that, we'll round out with some research from Mandiant on a, another threat actor with a bajillion names. With that, though, let's go ahead and kick our way in. So we are back from the holidays. I guess technically we had an episode that aired last week right after the holidays, but this is our first recording after the holidays. Uh, Corey, are you well rested? Oh, yeah. I had a lot of time off and luckily, no. I guess there were a couple little incidents, but nothing that was really an incident. So how about you, Mr. Uh, World Traveler? Very well rested. I see that despite me being the one that actually went to London for the holidays, you're the one that double down on your arsenal supporting. I like to see it. Figured I'd be a poser, even if to make you happy. Oh, we've got a few coworkers that'll like that and a few that will very much not. Uh -oh. So we'll see which of them <laughs> listen to the podcast. <laughs> Unfortunately, they weren't a big team in the World Cup, but still. Arsenal? Well, the World Cup was- <laughs> It would be for... UK countries. <laughs> How many, were Correct. there any people from the team on the UK team? Uh, yeah. The bulk of the UK team is made up of Premier League players, and they had Saka, uh, they had uh, Ben White, I think, was on it too, although he had to go home for a undisclosed emergency. Anyways, this is not a soccer podcast. Doesn't matter. It's still <laughs> interesting. A little Arsenal representation, a few gunners on the World Cup team for UK. I like it. Um, anyways, though, before we signed off for the holidays, uh, we one of our last episodes before the what was it, our predictions and then the security report. Uh, we discussed at the time what was a relatively recent uh, notification from the password manager LastPass, where back in, I think it was the very end of November, they published a post saying that there was a security incident uh, caused by an adversary that had used information stolen from a past security incident in August in order to access a cloud storage bucket. Um, and on the podcast, we noted that their advisory was worded differently than previous ones they put out, where they didn't explicitly say that password vaults were not accessed. And instead, they said, quote, our customers' passwords remain safely encrypted. Um, so we had kind of put two and two together that this seemed to indicate that password vaults were accessed this time, because in previous reports, they would at least explicitly say they were not. Well, on December 22nd, they released an update three days before Christmas to their uh, blog post saying, uh, basically confirming that adversaries were able to steal a undisclosed number of password vault backups from that cloud storage bucket, um, as well as some other customer account information like names, email addresses, billing addresses, telephone numbers, and access IP addresses. Um, in their update, they said that their vaults are stored in a quote, proprietary binary format that contains both unencrypted and encrypted fields, which 
when you boil it down, basically means the URLs for your passwords are not encrypted, but the usernames, passwords, and notes and any form-filled data is encrypted. So let's stop that. I mean, the URLs essentially mean if you have a password at Facebook, people are going to know you have a password in the vault at Facebook or, or, or pick any other you know domain that might have a password associated with it. So I'm not sure. I, I mean... It, I, I certainly would love to encrypt the URLs too, which I think was an update they said they did. But it's basically just giving a little information where you might have a password in the vault, not necessarily losing that password, which is a little step. But frankly, I bet you could guess almost every human has a Gmail, Facebook, Instagram, whatever password. So I'm not sure what how big a deal the unencrypted URLs are. I, I know we're going to have talking points it. later, but I what do you, what are your thoughts? I mean, my main issue with it is that, I mean, as with many of these breaches, it enables more phishing against individuals. So yeah, yeah, they know you have an account there, so they can certainly they might even say, "Hey, due to the last pass breach, Facebook is forcing users to change passwords. Click on this link here." So yes, I'm sure exactly. we'll talk about phishing after this. <laughs> Like the URL unencrypted on its own isn't going to mean your account is compromised, but it just it gives a little bit more ammo for whoever has these password vaults now to go after your accounts. Um, so when it, one other question, I guess we could say for talking points, do you have any feelings on the proprietary blob? To me, it's uh, I mean, it's not the end of the world, but my issue is only, I mean, the good news is, as you mentioned, the AES 256-bit encryption, which means that even if they steal these encrypted blobs, it's not guaranteed your passwords are out there. And it's probably very unlikely because I think you'll talk about the the uh, strength of their particular uh, hashing functions. But proprietary, at least in cryptography world, uh, uh, where cryptography tends to fail when you're using public ciphers are in implementations of them. As in how, you know, are you doing everything right to keep that, that cryptographic algorithm really cryptographically sound? So proprietary always does add a little concern when I think cryptography, because there could always be some implementation mistake that despite the great sounding encryption algorithm might be a weakness. I'd be concerned if they said they were using a proprietary encryption algorithm. I'm less concerned about the data storage itself. Like to me, I just read that as they're not using JSON or XML or a CSV. It's they've got their own little binary data. They encrypt the fields before they plop it in there and then send it up to LastPass. So I think in this case, that's a very good point. You never want to roll your own crypto. That's how you end up in a bad spot as a security provider or software provider. Um, but in this case, it's just the, the data storage portion of it is proprietary. I think that's a little less concerning. But let's chat about the encryption for a bit. So when it comes to the encrypted fields, you mentioned they are all encrypted with AES-256, which unless the NSA has made it farther with their quantum computer than we think they have, is as safe as possible as long as you don't give up your key. Um, and for the key that they use for this, it's derived from your master password. So basically, they use a, a computationally expensive hashing algorithm called PBKDF2, um, and in fact, use multiple rounds of it, anywhere from 5,000 if you've got an old account to over 100,000 rounds of it, uh, to basically take your master password and turn it into a hash, which they then use as the key to encrypt the database. 
So in our last podcast, we mentioned or went over their whole, what do they call it? Zero knowledge um, protection for your password vaults. Basically all of this like hashing of your password happens on the client in your browser and your browser add-on on your app, on your phone, whatever. And it's only the hash then that gets sent to them in order to authenticate you and then also to decrypt the, uh, the password vault itself. Um, but one thing they noted, or at least researchers pointed out, was while LastPass says that currently they use 100,000 or technically 100,100 rounds of hashing in order to derive your key, if you've got an older account, I think it's like five years or so or older, if you're one of the early adopters of LastPass, it only uses 5,000 rounds. And long story short, what this means is it is technically quicker to crack those because your computer has to chug through less useless hashing uh, for any given attempt against it uh, before potentially arriving at the correct guess. That said, I think our advice from the last time we talked about this still stands and that if you've got a strong master password, if you've been following good practices for the master password for your vault, you're probably not at risk, at least currently, um, for someone breaking into that vault. Now, if you're using like an eight character password or even their minimum 12 character, like in that case, you might actually have some concerns, especially if you didn't follow good practices for that master password. There's been some researchers that have pointed out that yes, technically it would take a million years to try every single 12 character password possibility. But the reality is humans don't just pick random numbers in general. And if you're using dictionary words, it lowers the amount of attempts that they'd have to do. So could be a risk. Uh, obviously, the other issue from this is the password vault is gone. Like it's out there, someone, some adversary has it. This isn't a situation where if you change your password, it's like protected now because it's a backup copy of it that's gone and it has that old password. So changing your master password does nothing to protect that. And as computation power gets stronger over time, whenever these quantum computers get enough qubits to actually do anything practical, like that vault is still out there. And if your passwords inside of it are still the same, whenever this future happens, they would now be at risk at being cracked and potentially used to breach your accounts. So do you think that the practical takeaway, and I think we talked about this in our third podcast, is the cool thing about these password managers is a lot of them have I wouldn't call them an entirely automatic as as far as someone who's used it and also uses two-factor has encountered. <laughs> Sometimes if you do good security things like add two-factor, the automation needs some help. But you can automatically change every password in your vault. That's the beauty of using a password manager is a lot of the good ones will you know not just change your master password, but allow you to just use the browser extension vault and auto change every password. Um, my default is that I used to set it to 32 characters random. Now it's 24 just because apparently some websites don't go that high. But you, you can auto change all those passwords with the caveat being it's not as easy as always advertised and that sometimes they will get hung up on other checks the website does. Uh, but would you recommend at this point people just, I mean, if you're using a password manager, it should be fairly easy for you to automatically change every single password. And while NIST and I would say even I don't recommend you have to change your passwords regularly outside of a breach if you're using MFA in a password manager. It's not a bad habit to occasionally just 
turn over and rotate all your passwords for the heck of it. Would you say that's probably a good idea at this point, Mark? I do think so. So I, I don't think this is a situation where you immediately have to go and change every single one of your passwords. You've got time, but I think this is a good opportunity to start the process of going through your most critical accounts and using whatever automated tools you have through the password manager or just going through manually and resetting your credentials that were stored in that vault. Because, I mean, the reality is that it will eventually get cracked. I think we will have a future. I don't know if it's five years from now, 10 years from now, whatever, where if you're still using that same account and that same password and your vault is out there, someone will eventually be able to crack it. That's just where computing power is going. And so now is probably a good time to at least refresh your passwords through there, maybe use some of the new features to set stronger passwords than you previously had, and at least get that rolling so that by the time your vault gets cracked, you're in a safer spot. That's my two cents, at least. And it's, yeah. kind of, it's what I've started doing with some of my critical accounts. I, I totally agree. And the reason I ask is I actually did it. Uh, that's why I know it's not entirely automated, especially, again, when you're doing the extra benefit of multi-factor. But it is still much easier than manually having to remember. The other benefit, I'll say, for users out there with uh, password managers like LastPass, but pretty much all of them, is they also seem to categorize sites. So, for instance, they'll have finance category productivity tools. So to Mark's point, if you are doing it manually, you can at least maybe prioritize your finance ones, like your banking sites first and productivity work stuff, and, and maybe worry about the gaming or entertainment ones a little later, depending on your preference of what's important to you. But yep. yeah, le leverage those those easy tools. They do make it as easy as possible. It's unfortunately not quite a single button press, especially if you take advantage of MFA but it's uh, not that hard. So now one other thing I wanted to bring up though is uh, when we, historically when I've talked about password managers, I try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt and that you know the bulk of the main big ones, you know, LastPass, 1Password, Bitwarden, they all do a decent job of protecting your vault. They all work relatively the same and that the password manager provider never gets your unencrypted information. It's only ever stored encrypted in the cloud. It downloads it locally and decrypts it there. Uh, but it turns out they're not all created equally in that regard. Uh, and over the past like couple of weeks, a lot of researchers have pointed out some of the key differences between some of the password managers. Like some of them uh, don't just use the master password. In fact, some of them don't use your master password at all in order to encrypt the vault. That's just to authenticate you to download the vault. And instead, they use like a client secret stored on your machine so that someone steals the vault, getting your master password isn't enough to break in. Some other ones use a combination where you need both the master password and a client secret on your machine so that, again, if even if they get the vault and they fish you out of your master password, By they the way, still need malware on your machine. Right away, I like the use them both. Like you, there's an issue with just using the master password, but there's also an issue with just using the client key, which is you can be get malware too, but using them both kind of, or more, you know, just like MFA, the more salts and things you add that are unique to you. So, I mean, either way, like, it's, it feels like, like I'm, I, I try not to throw stones in glass houses when it comes to a breach. But as this is kind of unraveling, it does feel like LastPass's architecture does leave a little bit to be desired compared to some of the alternatives too. And so, I don't know, maybe they use this as an opportunity to refresh how they handle password vaults. 
uh, to regain some of the trust. I'm with you that it's a lost. great opportunity to start using two things and not just the master password, adding the client key. But to be honest, I also feel like the security, the, the likelihood of people, really it falls down to the user. If your master password is password one, two, three, four, and you haven't set LastPass to use 24 character random passwords, then you might be in trouble and you really should worry about this. But if you actually purchased a password manager, I'm guessing you're using a pass sentence or a pass phrase at least that's long for your master password. Mine is 29 characters. It's a easy to type sentence. Uh, and, and by default, I don't know any of my passwords. They're all 24 characters or more. So I think it's a great thing to improve upon, but I don't necessarily think that they deserve a ton of bad press for overly bad security. I mean, they did have a breach and they did, maybe they didn't pay attention to the full potential of the first incident that led to this, but I'm not ready to just say they totally suck yet. They seem to be transparent. And to their credit, that transparency is actually really big. Like they suffered a pretty significant incident, all things considered, but they've been very transparent about it and been forthcoming with information and details so people, their customers know how they're affected. And that is like, to a point, commendable. And even the limited, like when we last talked about this, we didn't have all the information we do now, but you know, they transparently shared what they could at the time. So it's even understandable in my opinion, the, the timeline of them releasing the full detail. I will say, talking about the industry, not related other than a crappy, horrible journalist who will go unnamed since he's one we don't like connecting it. Uh, I, there's also been a Slack in Circle CI breach uh, just in the past, you know, 24. It, by the time you've listened to this, it'll be a few days uh, ago, but they've had some breaches recently. Uh, and they're just starting their transparent disclosure. But this unnamed crappy Ars Technica reporter who tends to kind of <laughs> overblow everything and not use actual facts had the goal of adding LastPass to this article and even citing, oh, and by the way, LastPass was just hacked. It's not at all clear if these are related, but it's certainly a possibility. So this idiot journalist is tying <laughs> this to LastPass just because it happened at the same time. So... Anyways, it's just my point that it seems that this LastPass breach is getting a lot of press. Uh, mm -hmm. And it should get some because there should be people like us that inform people that use the product what you should do to protect yourself. But I don't think it deserves the kind of doomsday crap that's happening with some journalistic organizations. Sorry, I have strong opinions about bad journalists, although I really love good journalists because they help our community when people aren't Important transparent. Important tangent that you brought up though, if you are using Circle CI in your organization for change management, um, make sure you rotate your secrets that you have within it. They are instructing all of their customers, except for the server versions, I think, um, to rotate any secrets they had in it. Uh, that's a very good point. Slack seems to have just been, an. I think it was an attacker got a bunch of their internal GitHub repositories. They've got a bunch of source code for it now, which could open up opportunities to find vulnerabilities in the application, but doesn't appear to be like stealing your data out of your Slack channel, as an example. So important tangent to bring up, even yeah. if uh, an article, a author you don't like is the one that uh, drove that connection. 
No, no, it's it's good to know about those particular breaches. I just don't understand why LastPass is mentioned in this article at all. I do get why you might uh, connect Slack and CircleCI, though. I think in the Slack attack, they that might have been part of uh, how they got employee token credentials for CircleCI. Uh, so those two may be inadvertently connected. I just don't know where LastPass comes in. Anyways, so if you are using LastPass, probably time to start rotating some of your passwords you have in it. Um, and I don't know, hope that quantum computers don't become a thing before you complete all of that. Uh, moving on though, that's not the only breach that we're going to be discussing on this, uh, this episode today. So last week, a collection of run around 200 million, uh, records that were allegedly stolen from Twitter appeared on a pretty popular underground forum, breached at VC. And it looks like these are a subset. Let's just call it raids. <laughs> raids. <laughs> Raid form 2.0. Yeah, yes. I mean, but yeah, breach that whatever freaking top level they use now. Toe, VC, whichever one that gets past the FBI. Unless the FBI VC? is actually owning, owns it. I'm not sure. Anyways, uh, so this looks to be a either a subset or a duplicated copy of that 400 million record breach that was first posted for sale in December for $200,000. This new pared down or deduplicated copy uh, can be yours for eight whole tokens on the underground forum, which is a few minutes of effort or I think two bucks. Uh, So quite a bit of a discount on this one. Now the original one claimed to have scraped the records through an exposed API Uh, all the way back in 2021. And in fact, this flaw was fixed in January 2022 and was associated with a separate breach of 5.4 million records uh, that was posted in July 2022. Uh, One quick, actually, before we jump into this, Corey, did you find out what VC is for a TLD? I sure did. It's St. Vincent in the Grenadines, a tiny Caribbean island. Yeah, I, I, I was surprised it was actually a country domain and not one of the new ones, but it is a, a tiny little country in the Caribbean. I could see it being a, a vanity TLD for venture capitalists, but I guess St. Vincent and the Grenadines is fair. Um, anyways, so one important thing to note about these 200 million records that are now freely available and widely circulated, there are no passwords in it. Um, so basically the vulnerability they were exploiting allowed them to scrape information about the account and some metadata, but not the actual credentials. Um, So it does contain things like account names, obviously, the email addresses associated with it. By the way, the account name, aren't you tweeting by that? So really, (laughs) that should not be secret. The rest, It's the important association of the account name to the email email address. Uh, Usernames too for authentication, bios, metadata, stuff like that. So the big thing from this, though, is the pairing of account names with emails which means that for a lot of like high profile celebrity accounts now you know one of their email addresses they potentially use so while you can't prob- you can't take over their twitter account just with this information this is another one where practical impact for it is it does potentially enable more phishing against some potentially high profile individuals out there like you could imagine having elon musk's email that he used for this might open up some spear phishing opportunities. In the post itself, the post says there are no phones or physical addresses. Okay. So the billing addresses and emails, uh, or or, yeah, no phones either. So emails, yes, but telephone number, no. 
So I'm, I, to me, that while I actually personally think physical addresses and phone numbers are pretty much public domain in this day and age, anyways, regardless of us trying to keep them private, I the the post on breach.do said there were none. Fair, okay. Either way, though, so you're not at risk of your account being compromised, but this does at least enable potential phishing against it. You could imagine as an adversary now. Maybe you want to go after one of those vanity, what are they called, OG Twitter handles, like the two or three character ones. Now you know the email address that's backing it up, and you can start fishing away at that individual to try and get them to give up their credentials to you. So all in all, I think this is it's not as big of a deal as like some are making it out to be. Yes, 200 million records is a lot, but the actual information in them isn't enough to do a whole lot on its own. They're just, as we said in the last one, opens up more phishing opportunities, which is just what we need, more phishing opportunities, but relatively limited impact. I will say I wouldn't downplay that. I, you know, any, especially if they use, like like with any breach, they can actually even use the Twitter breach as part of the lure and they know a little bit about you, just like we said with the last pass breach. So I 100% agree with you. It's actually not that big a deal in the, the scope of breaches. Uh, but it is worth knowing about simply so that you can be just vigilant about phishing and maybe let your users know that, you know, password manager and Twitter related phishing is something to watch out for right now. Yep. And if you're curious if you were affected by this, yes, you were if you use Twitter. I think the 200 million records is basically every single Twitter user out there. After Elon Musk removed all the, the, the bots. I guess this is a good opportunity to see how removed some of this account deleting and uh, banning actually was. And if it was just turning it from enabled to disabled or actually deleting some of the data behind it, that'll be interesting. I'm sure the folks, uh, our friendly folks in the GDPR office over in the EU will have a field day with this one. In fact, that was actually part of the original uh, uh, extortion against Twitter when they first posted the 400 million records. Uh, the individual that posted them with the $200,000 price tag was basically saying, Elon, it's cheaper for you to buy this data from me than for me to leak it out and get you a GDPR fine, which is <laughs> one way to uh, attempt to sell your stolen data back to the company. Um, good news is the API was patched, and so the vulnerability is no longer exploitable. Bad news is Elon seems to be turning stuff off and on every single day and just throwing wrenches into everything. So who knows what'll pop up next at Twitter? Everyone's deleting it anyway, so who cares? Okay, exactly. I haven't yet. Just because I think we're required to for work right now, but I'm trying to. We'll see. I, uh, yeah, the day I can, I think I will. Um, moving on, though, last thing I wanted to cover was actually a bit of research for Mandiant that they just published. Uh, I think today, as we are recording this. Um, so by the time you're listening to this, it will have been last week, where they published a blog post with research on recent activity from a hacking group known as Turletine, which is a Russian-based threat actor that focuses on attacks against government entities. Uh, as with most of these nation-state-backed, or I guess APT groups, uh, Turletine is not their only name. You may also know them as Ouroboros. Probably Venomous. isn't their name at all. These are all Correct. vendor assigned names. So who knows what their only and real name might be? <laughs> Let's go through the list though, because it's amazing. That's uh, crazy. So Ouroboros, Venomous Bear, Group 88, Waterbug, Wraith, Tag 0530, Krypton, Hippo Team, Pacifier APT, 
Popeye, SIG-23, and Iron Hunter. And that's why the security industry is so good at attributing stuff, because they have all this standardized sargasm. I remember Ouroboros the most because I still remember the snake eating itself emblem of the first Turla report I read. God, long, long time ago. This is like, I, we're get, let's go down that tangent. This is one where it's getting a little ridiculous. And I don't know who is the one that needs to come up, like what, who is the one that we need to follow when it comes to a standard, but it's having 20 names for one group just confuses everyone. The, the cynic in me says it won't change. Like we've talked a little bit about it before. The reason companies like, I guarantee you the third company to find this knew the other two names that were already assigned. They're doing this for competitive threat intelligence bullcrap. We all see threats. We're all security companies. We're all doing good work. And you don't want, you're just making up a new name to make something look new. It's, it's, it, to me, it's sad. Uh, the ones I tend to, I, I pick, there tends to be one name that sticks the most. And I feel like Turla is the one. And besides that, the only other one I use is the APT number, if it has one, like APT 58, 59, because I think the government and that, that feels a more standardized thing. I, I hate it as far as description, because who can remember that APT 58 is China? or Russia or North Korea or whoever. But at least it feels with that number is something everyone can kind of agree on and then just pick one name. Um, anyways, Turla is what I hear the most, so it's the one I use for this, but I agree. It's, it's just silly, but unfortunately it's profit and greed that's going to continue. You know, people are marketing. It's just marketing. I, wow. <laughs> we do it too. I don't want to. <laughs> Corey says I, on the corporate We love our marketing podcast. organization, <laughs> but it. It's when it starts to confuse the practicality of figuring out the data you need for the defense, it does get a little irritating. So like my proposal, we've already got a numbering system for stuff in the security space, and that's CVE numbers. Originally developed by MITRE, now used around the world. Like I like your point of APT, whatever. I think, isn't it like FireEye, which is technically a part of Mandiant that uses yeah. APT numbers? I but think they started it, Yeah, yeah. But and so CVEs don't stop people from having fancy marketing names for stuff too, but Truth. it still gives us a standard to follow. So exactly. maybe there is a middle ground where we've got a agreed upon APT numbering system that we all use so we can track them reliably and then let the our friends in marketing use their fancy heart bleed, whatever names they want for the actual organizations. I think that's what we need to move towards. And I wish other people pushed hard for that too, so that we could get there. But until then, we're going to discuss this group that has 20 names, one of them being Turla, and some of their recent activity. Uh, so starting in September 2022, Mandiant discovered a suspected Turla team operation delivering a reconnaissance utility called, oh boy, Kopiluwak, K-O-P-I-L-U-W-A-K. Uh, this one does not appear to be named after anything other than a bunch of random characters. Uh, they also found them using a backdoor called Quiet Canary. Uh, and they were targeting previously infected systems that were uh, impacted by the Andromeda malware. So Andromeda was a commonly used malware back in the early 2010s uh, that originally spread using compromised USB devices. Uh, it's got a few hard-coded command and control domains in each variant. And the variant that Turla targeted actually it was first uploaded to VirusTotal in March of 2013. So nine years ago is when this original malware infection impacted these hosts. 
Uh, so some of the command and control domains in that variant from 2013 uh, had expired. So the DNS records for them were no longer claimed. And so what Turla did is they went and re-registered those domains, spun up new command and control infrastructure for this old Andromeda malware, which then started beginning back into it and allowed them to access these machines that had been infected nine years ago and remain infected to this day. Uh, so they re-registered the C2s in early 2022, I think it was January, um, and effectively re-enabled that. By the way, I, I found that part kind of interesting, though. Like, we always have these domains or IPs that are in bad lists and eventually get deregistered if they're domains, but the fact that there's nothing holding back, I, I like, you think people that manage assigning domains would remember the history of bad domains and if suddenly they get re-registered, have some sort of flag set. That's interesting. Like, because oftentimes you'll see researchers or like security vendors will uh, go and register some of these domains. Maybe they figure out the, the domain name generation algorithm or if the attacker has let it lapse, they can register it and then sync whole connections and effectively neuter the botnet. Uh, with WannaCry, there was that hard-coded domain in there that was effectively a kill switch that Marcus Hutchins found, went and registered, and that's what stopped WannaCry from propagating that day. Uh, I know in our data, we see, what is it, talknowall.com show up almost every single quarter as one of the top malware domains in our DNS firewalling service. And that's from the old VPN filter malware. I think it was the first stage beaconing back to try and grab the second stage. And so you make a good point that, like, if you as a... It's like the FBI or Microsoft or whoever goes and takes over one of these domains to sinkhole it. You got to hold on to that until you the end of time. Keep it, yeah. And because I know clearly, organizations like domain tools aren't really associated with ICANN and domain registration, but they do have a history. So they know these bad domains existed and they know they're nasty. So there's a place you could definitely go as a registrar or, yeah, as a registrar where you could maybe even like like hopefully the authority keeps it forever like you said but at least the registrar should go through this blacklist this list of known previously maliciously registered domains and maybe at the very least ask a few questions and monitor if someone asks to re-register them yeah you would think so anyways they used a privacy protection based dns registrar in order to grab these domains spun up the botnet and then let it sit there in Beacon Home all the way until September of 2022, where they then went in and accessed at least one victim located in Ukraine and used that Andromeda infection to download and execute that Kapaluwak uh, reconnaissance tool. By the way, uh, so our, was, our producer mentions that that sounds like some sort of fancy name for civet coffee. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll let him know that he can go ahead and drink coffee out of a little lemming-like creatures, but all he wants. But I'll I'll stick with Norm. I'm lying, by the way. I've actually had it in Indonesia, so I have drank coffee out of a civet's butt. <laughs> okay. Well, in this case, it's not coffee. It is a JavaScript-based reconnaissance utility. Same, same. Up. Yeah. Same, same. Sims up. Thread spins actors. Up another... It came out of someone's butt. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, spins up another C2 channel, and it enables victim profiling. So many had actually pointed out, like, this seemed a little superfluous. Like, they didn't need this tool. Andromeda enabled all of the same activity that they used this tool for, but they did it anyway. 
Uh, so two days after loading up that reconnaissance utility, they went and downloaded the quiet canary uh, backdoor to the, the hosts. Um, funny enough, they downloaded it twice, but only executed it on the second time. Uh, so quiet canary is a .NET based backdoor. It's also known as Tunnus, which I have heard that name for uh, in a different report, I think it was last year, probably from the same group. Uh, this one is used specifically to gather and exfiltrate data from a victim. So 15 minutes after they executed it, uh, they began compressing, staging, and exfiltrating data from this host. Um, funny enough, so one of the commands they issued, they were using netstat to profile the, the network it was connected to. They actually had a typo in it, which forced them to reissue the command, and it suggests now that this data theft process was actually a manual process, like hands-on keyboard, someone hooked in was starting to steal all the information. By the way, I just in case I missed it, because this made me think about state-sponsored threat actors strangely using public or even criminal tools, and then add to that old. But this is a Russian-based threat actor. That does not necessarily mean state-sponsored. Is this considered Correct. more a criminal group? Uh, I don't. So it, when I was doing my cursory research on it, I didn't see anyone like point it to you know, the Russian GRU or their military hacking operation, it does seem more like a Russian-based actor versus a Russian state-sponsored. Yeah, yeah, the difference in based versus backed, cool. Yeah. I thought so, because while it's not unusual for even state-sponsored actors to actually use some pretty normal off-the-shelf tools, I, I don't understand why they would go back nine years for, for a botnet. Either way, so some of the data collection they did, they went and grabbed the contents of the Windows app data, app data directory, contents of the C slash users directory, and then all documents. By the way, that app data directory, that's uh, like, uh, obviously it will give you an idea of the programs on a computer, but there is some, like There's, it's, Office it, puts a lot of stuff in there. Not just uh, Office, so when you install a program yeah. on Windows, that is the default location for any application data storage too i think so like yeah, anything yeah. like as an example let's say you installed like a uh, i don't have a good example off the top of my head like a video game uh your state save data might go in the app data directory it's one of those where the user has right permissions it's easy for an application to spin their own directory up in there and so data but i'm within more thinking about yeah I, I, what won't go there is like your word docs those tend to go to your user documents directory and that would be intellectual property but i think there's a lot of keying and uh, other important registration i you know keys are one of the things malware tries to steal often but yeah i just wanted folks to know i'm, I'm sure most of our listeners know what app data was but Cool. Thanks they the did also try and steal all Word docs, text files, PDFs, and Excel spreadsheets from these C slash users directory and D directory uh, drive locations as well too. And again, compress them all into uh, oh boy, RAR archives, not rare. That's how I say it. That's how I say. It. Good job. <laughs> Thank Good you. Good job for conforming to me. No, I, my I dad think you gave should me call crap for that one. I think I think it's fun to hear someone call it rare. So okay, actually, I just forget me and your dad. Be 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 a snowflake, a unique snowflake. Pass. Anyways, <laughs> I've gotten enough crap already. Uh, RAR archives and shipped them off to uh, the unknown adversary, or I guess the known adversary. So uh, the last little bit from here, they only looked for files created after January 1st, 2021, which is an interesting filter on it. So a couple of takeaways from this. First off, this was a nine-year-old malware infection that was still running on these machines undetected. And yes, it had been effectively neutered by the domains being offline, 
but clearly all it took was re-registering domains and setting up new infrastructure to bring it back online. That's, uh, first off, my first hot take is, wow, there is a Windows machine that has been up for nine years and has not completely broken or been replaced, so kudos. But second one, like, kudos, no heck, kudos. Why aren't you updating your software? How That's the heck do you not risk. find a malware infection of a very popular and widely discovered malware like Andromeda over the course of nine well, years? Let, let's talk about that. Uh, we crap on signature-based protection all the time, but the, uh, even when signature-based protection was the most popular, we were up to millions of malware signatures decades ago. And the truth, we, you know this with IPS too. Uh, because of memory limits, because of time limits, because you don't want AV to use more than 1% of your CPU, they prune signatures. They weed out old stuff that they see less. So if you're using something that's heavily signature-based, uh, I could see old malware not having a signature anymore. Now, hopefully there's tons of additional protections that will look for the techniques old malware uses. So I, I still agree with the premise that you shouldn't be missing this old malware, but I'm not surprised that, that signatures disappear, known signatures disappear over time because I've known that's part of the industry, I guess just learning over time, I guess in my kind of days when I was young and didn't think about it. I just assumed we'd have protection forever. But they've, uh, malware, as you know, me and Mark talk about polymorphic, the same actual threat, having hundreds and thousands of different hashes just because it can, can be repacked. You can't keep signatures forever. You know, the database would probably literally be billions at this point if you had every single variant for a hash of every possible malware out there. So I guess that is, I mean, it's horrible that there's no other technique. If there there was a, I don't know if there's any specific AV that is missing this, but uh, it is horrible that you miss old threats, but I could see one reason for it is you're heavily signature based and you're not using the more proactive techniques to catch these threats. So what's the moral of that story? Don't rely just on signature-based anti-malware? Like For sure. It, it, it feels, it's hard to, which we've been saying forever. And by the way, at this point, if even a normal antivirus company doesn't have some of these proactive techniques, I, I'd be very surprised. But yeah, I guess so. And to that point, Mandiant was actually kind enough to share the hashes of the Andromeda malware that was reactivated in this. And virus total, quick search on there, 58 out of 71 vendors were able to catch it. And so if you had any anti-malware turned on and enabled on these machines, Should you be probably okay. would have caught it. I but, would say the moral of the story is get EDR. Make sure that whatever your endpoint protection is, whether you call it AV or not, that it has some endpoint detection and response. The difference being is most antivirus and APP software is trying to be preventative. It's blocking stuff it knows or it can figure out quickly before it even has a chance to execute. But the stuff that gets past it is going to start executing. And that's where endpoint detection response, which the main difference is post-execution detection. That doesn't sound that that sounds worse than it is. Often, even though it's technically post-execution, it can be stopped before it does anything bad because they detect some early things like it's during doing. execution. Yeah, yes, during execution. But my the main takeaway is EPP is a simple requirement that everyone has, but EDR, invest in it. Make sure you 
your solution has that too, that is probably the better protection nowadays because it's the only thing that's going to give you a chance of catching new stuff. And then from a like another takeaway from this, like they've now proven that re-registering old C2 domains can be fruitful for an adversary. And I wonder if we're going to start seeing more of this activity too with folks like going back through old command and control domains from botnet infections that may still be on hosts and use that to carry out additional attacks. So I guess main takeaway from that is make sure that you don't just leave a system unprotected. Install tools like EDR that can potentially uh, catch some of these reinfections of machines. Either way, cool report. Always nice hearing from Turla, Ouroboros, Venomous, Bear, Group 88, Waterbug, Wraith, Tag, 0530, Krypton, <laughs> Hippo, Team, Pacifier, APT, Popeye, Sig, 23, and Iron Hunter. Uh, and good research from Mandiant on that front. Man, we really do need a standardized naming convention. This is getting real old real quick. Yeah. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter for now. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are. I love are how your eyes went up into the right to remember that. When am I yeah. again? That's how much <laughs> I care about Twitter now that Elon owns it. Now that he's burning it to the ground. Uh, and also hashtag the 443 podcast. Uh, thanks wow. again for listening. Yeah. I'm just super impressed that you went right back into the perfectly remembered outro, <laughs> despite me actually throwing all those wrenches. You still write to the T, the exact words. And if you haven't noticed, each of these is recorded individually for every episode. <laughs> thanks again for listening. And you will hear from us next week.